are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. So I bring on guests who have a particular perspective or experience that I think expands the conversation about meaningful or productive work. And I often draw on the meeting and work research I've been conducting over the last 15 years, as well as my own experience consulting, including the work that I do at Insignium, which is a global management consulting firm. I'll get to my program and guest in just a moment, but first, a big thank you and shout out to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. Jobbing.com is the leading locally focused job board in the nation, and they are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Great partnership. Thank you, Jobbing.com. Last week, if you missed the show, you can always catch the podcast. We were live on air with Kirk Bowman, who is the founder of Art of Value, a value pricing consultancy here in Dallas, Texas, and a practicing fellow at the Verisage Institute. We talked about the movement Kirk and others are behind to get away from charging by the hour for a project in professional services and instead charging for the value received by the client. Kirk talked about how value price consulting actually allows the service provider to stay true to his or her why or purpose, and how the client ultimately wins by getting the best focus of the service provider. With us this week is Dr. Owen Lynch, who is an associate professor in the Meadows School of the Arts at Southern Methodist University and the director of the organizational communications track within the Corporate Communications and Public Affairs Department. Outside of the communications department, he holds the positions of Senior Research Fellow and Director of Community Research and Engagement for the Hunt Institute of Engineering and Humanity within the Lyle School of Engineering at SMU. He also serves as the director of Get Healthy Dallas, a nonprofit organization he helped form that is dedicated to addressing the lack of healthy food options, adequate education, and economic development opportunities in Dallas with special focus on the South Dallas and the Fair Park area. Dr. Lynch is a friend of mine and a co-author in, in tandem with our meeting and work research. He joins us today right here from my office studio, Dr. Owen Lynch. Welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you for having me. Great to have you back. We've done this a couple of times before on various various topics, but there's a ton I want to extract from you. You are a man who wears many, many hats. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's just start first, if we can, by the work that you're doing at Get Healthy Dallas. So first, help us understand how was the organization formed, who was involved? Okay. So Get Healthy Dallas is a nonprofit, um, and it was actually formed uh, by two of students at SMU who are PhD students and they were doing research in this new thing that was being discovered called food deserts and this was quite a while ago obviously about nine years ago and they two doctoral students in the divinity school and they were studying um, food deserts and food equity and why do some regions um, have lack of access to health fresh food so they came to me as a qualitative researcher um, and they asked me if they were interested in doing a study how could they best understand what a food desert is as it was a new concept and how people who live in the food desert 
um, how they're experiencing it. And that's, I think, a really important question that Robert Foster and Stacey Sharon has first asked me. Because what a food desert is, is a geographical economic uh, indicator. In other words, it says people living in one square mile in a densely popul- urban population who don't have access to health, fresh food. So many people may not realize this, but the southern sector of Dallas, for example, from 30 down is about as large as the city of Atlanta. And it only has a couple of grocery stores in that entire region. So uh, two to three out of every five children are food insecure in South Dallas. Uh, and there's only one grocery store in all South Dallas Fair Park that serves uh, adequate, fresh, healthy vegetables. And even then the price is a little higher. So when you have a um, what the Fed would call an isolated population, that doesn't have access to fresh, healthy food um, within, and then you have lack of transportation within that same area. Um, what you have is generations of people now who've grown up, um, and there may be uh, some fast food restaurant chains, a couple, um, but there's not very many options for people to eat healthy. Uh, there's not many options for people to buy or even de- develop food habits around healthy food. Um, and when they buy groceries, it's typically a three-hour round trip on public transport if they don't have a private personal car. Um, and so, and they can only do that infrequently. And so, you don't buy fresh food because it goes bad. If you and if you're working like most of these families uh, are working exorbitant hours, so my students wanted to understand this phenomenon. And so, we came up with the idea of going to a local high school, and. I'm sorry, going to a local high school and equipping the high school students, the seniors, they're called the Turner 12 at Lincoln High School in South Dallas, with cameras. And we asked them the simple question, take a picture and tell us what is healthy to you. And it could be, and the students went off and took pictures, and it's called photo voice ethnography. They took pictures of their, of their local environment, and then they coded those pictures on either healthy or unhealthy. Uh, and then they asked their peers, and they did focus groups with their peers and how they saw the pictures. And a pattern emerged that was quite odd. We, we think of um, food deserts as something that we can map, and, and the USDA first notices that they've mapped the entire United States. If you go on the USDA's website, type in food desert, type in your zip code, you can see how your zip code, for example, is classified. But what's really important to recognize is that, yes, we can classify what a food desert is, but people live in a food desert. And to them, it's a very different experience. It's actually a lived experience. It's an individual household level um, challenge. It's not just something that we map in an abstract or macroeconomic term. So we wanted to capture that a little bit. And what we found was the students looked at something like McDonald's, which for myself, someone who has access uh, to lots of fresh, healthy food in my community, and someone who's, uh, who used to be a chef, so used to eating and healthy, fresh food from Europe, um, the students classified that as healthy and unhealthy equally. And when they said you only have $5, and that's what you have to stretch to eat for that, for that day, you actually can get a lot of food for that $5 in McDonald's. And so they equated being full, not feeling hungry, as healthy, which is totally understandable, um, from those kids' perspective, especially when the school sessions weren't in. And so we had students also say, you know, my neighborhood, is it's the trash and it's the, 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 the quality of the water spills off and the fact that there's other issues in their community that they weren't, um, that they felt were bringing their neighborhood down. They, declined, they were saying, I'm less worried about broccoli when I saw, I've seen a dead person on my way to school, one student said. So... <laughs> It's understandable, but at the same time, they wanted the option to understand where vegetables were. They recognized they didn't know how to prepare many of the vegetable foods, and that's played out in lots of literature and research. Um, 
And so they, they came up with a solution, which was they wanted something they could have pride in for that community. They wanted something that was giving back to the community. They wanted to learn how to do something for jobs because they felt that the lack of ability to have access to healthy and equitable jobs was just as important to them as learning about fruits and vegetables. So what the students knew implicitly, which is something that is difficult for uh, many people to understand, a food desert is not just about, hey, give them vegetables, then it's not a food desert. A food desert is a health desert, it's an infrastructure desert, it's a job desert, um, it's a knowledge desert, it's for, for practices and food ways that have happened for a long period of time that have developed in communities that haven't had access to those vegetables. So it's lots of things, it's systemic. They saw it, and so Get Healthy Dallas was created at first to address, on a systemic level, working with the schools um, on a, uh, the, the food desert issue. And then it, it's kind of transformed a little bit since then and, and had lots of iterations. But now it, it, it's kind of um, the practical arm, if you want to do, or the applied arm of my research side, which is at the Hunt Institute. So I, I research food deserts. I work with partners all over the food deserts landscape, and I work in concentrated urban poverty. But if I have a project that I think is particularly important, I'll use the structure of GHD to, um, to uh, enact that project. And so in some ways, what we're doing at the Hunt Institute is we're looking at food systems and how that all works. And we're looking at how do all these pieces fit together and why isn't there a healthy food system in South Dallas? Because it's a market failure. How can we address that? What are the barriers? What are the pieces that are missing? How do we make sure these pieces connect better? And then if there's a piece that's not there that I feel it is necessary to create uh, a healthier food system emerging, then I'll actually try and start, raise funds, find the talent, leverage assets to enact that solution. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. It's called asset-based community development. Okay. There's a, a lot I could say in response to that, um, Owen. Beautiful. And let me just call it for my, for my my listeners. And we do happen to enjoy listeners all over the globe, which is okay. a wonderful thing. And I appreciate very much that we're one big globe talking about this particular issue. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show, as you know, is that you certainly are a man working on purpose. Mm-hmm. And you do it on many different fronts. And I appreciate, too, that what you're doing in this particular initiative is addressing on a systemic level a variety of things that are, are problematic in, in these communities. Um, it's it's really, really impressive. I understand, too, that part of what you're doing is you've, you've been able to find ways to leverage other communities and organizations to help you. And one of them is restorative farms. Mm-hmm. So would you say more about who is restorative farms and how are they helping? So restorative farms actually isn't a who, it's more of a what. Okay. Um, so what we realized was uh, in many cities, they have, for example, um, funds that will help create uh, agricultural hubs or growth or food system growth. And let me step back a little bit and talk about Dallas, Texas landscape and why Restorative Forms was formed. Great. So Dallas is really a tale of two cities. You have a city that's divided by the Highway 30. Half of the landmass is below 30 and half of the landmass is above it. 90% of the jobs, some estimate even higher actually, are above 30 um, uh, 700,000 people, about a third to 40% of the population are below 30. Um, most of the tax generation obviously happens where the higher property and jobs are. Um, a lot of the services, unfortunately, are needed in a uh, area of, of poverty. So you have one of the highest growing cities in America in terms of economic development. You have more millionaires created in Dallas than any other city in the United States. We've been in the Forbes top 10 list for fastest growing cities. Um, 
for the last 10 years. I, um, so we are, we are the, part of the Texas miracle, they call it. Simultaneously, though, we've had a stagnant poverty that was recognized by the Fed in 2004. They said that if the isolated poverty in Dallas, Texas isn't addressed, they won't enjoy the prosperity that the rest of the region will have because there's no inroad for those communities to connect to this job training, job sourcing um, growth. And so we, we have, I live and you live uh, uh, less than a mile away from South Dallas. And we live in a neighborhood that's got good schools, excellent water, good infrastructure, nice stores, um, access to the whole city. Um, and yet a mile from us, our houses, literally, if you go down Lindsay Avenue, for example, you go from a million and a half White Rock Lake, a million uh, in the C streets to average now to then you go into the then you go into uh, heights and then you uh, which are about 670 then you get into lots of 70,000 around Jubilee Park which has done amazing work with their community and that's a model people should look at and then you move a little south further in South Dallas Bear Park and you're looking at houses with the lot values are about $5,000 um, wow and so you have and one third of those lots are empty and you have lots of the houses boarded up um, and so we go in that one road, you see, we go from some of the wealthiest town in, in, in America and best access with unemployment rate of three to 4% uh, to a part of town that has 28% unemployment. Um, and that's people who are actively looking for work uh, in South Dallas Fair Park and South Dallas in general. So that's part of the, that's part of the issue. So in that strange thing when we look at what's called asset-based development i'm not answering your question i'll get to it sorry uh, you <laughs> it's can okay tell. i know you have a lot to talk about keep going <laughs> so um in that part of town then we have a lot of assets though right we have um land we have people who are actively looking for work um we have people um and and growing vegetables is a labor-intensive hands-on process so, and we have communities who actually are really interested in local entrepreneurialism and helping each other and working with each other. In fact, if you poll, and we do lots of household surveys, they're much more um, connected to their neighbors and working with their neighbors and leveraging their strengths and personal entrepreneurial habits to, to make their community more sustainable and make their own lives. Um, they're focused. And so there's lots of these, uh, there's a real interest in being able to have this entrepreneurial spirit there, but there's lack of resources People don't know what to do in terms of what to grow, uh, what types of soil mix to have. And obviously, growing in Texas because of climate change is really challenging. So you have this strange part of town that's been neglected. We have lots of land mass, but we live in one of the most unresilient um, cities in America that we um, our foods brought in from, from foreign countries, from Mexico primarily, our fresh vegetables. Uh, it's actually warehouses in South Dallas and then brought into North Dallas into our grocery stores. Um, the f- food, if that system lock closes up for some reason, let's say, for example, somebody puts up a wall and charges high tax, the price of vegetables will go dramatically up, which means people become much more judicious in the amount they buy, the amount of leftover in that system will go down. And that's what's currently used to distribute to the food banks, uh, to other food programs. So we're, it's it's a very it's it's a less stable system than we we really hope and and it's really going to hold Dallas back from fully developing over time. So how can we create more resilient neighborhoods? And one of those ways is creating what we call an agri hub or a food system. 
And that's when every aspect of the food chain is actually located and done locally, uh, which makes a city much more resilient, obviously. Uh, and it creates the nice thing of organic or healthy, fresh, available food. And it creates, by proximity, healthier food habits, especially young children. If they see things growing and they watch things growing become a habit, they're much more likely to eat it. And there's lots of studies that show that. And then it has natural health implications. So a food hub, a food system, is simple, says that all of the food system, um, in terms of it goes from pre-production to food production, which is growing, to harvesting, to packaging, to uh, aggregating, to distribution, to retail, to selling, and then, and then the consumption, and then the waste of that food goes back into creating soil. That circle, every aspect of that is a job, or lots of jobs. And in the connecting of, to each one of those stages is transportation, and it's highly costly, and it's high labor intensive, but there are ways to do that more efficiently if everyone works together. But it requires a large amount of production aggregation for that to happen, and it requires systematic coordination. Otherwise, growing in your backyard is, is you'll never make money usually, uh, unless, you, unless you're really good at growing something that has high cash value. Um, growing in your backyard is really difficult to make ends meet, even though it's ne- necessary for your neighborhood. So there isn't the price point available to provide the thing that's needed in that community the most. And the only way we can do that is by creating a system that starts to work and network with each other to reduce their cost points and also dramatically increase collective productivity so we can start aggregating and having a local distribution system. That's kind of technical stuff. I'm sorry. That's fantastic. And so restorative farms. Yeah, restorative farms was, in about thirty seconds, if you can. So restorative farms is an umbrella. Okay. Company um, ter- that's owned by nobody, but like I fit my project and call it underneath that because my I'm working within a system. So it's actually anybody who's in that system who has a farm can connect through it. So it becomes an umbrella term to to foster that connections. Okay. And uh, it's a brainchild of many people. Like so. Okay. Fantastic. As you can tell, listeners, the man has a ton to share. You can see why I wanted to have him on the show. It's time for our first break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Owen Lynch, who is an associate professor in the Meadows School of Arts at Southern Methodist University. He also serves as the director of Get Healthy Dallas, a nonprofit organization he helped form that is dedicated to addressing the lack of healthy food options, adequate education, and economic development opportunities in Dallas, with special focus on the South Dallas and Fair Park area. He joins us today right here with me in my Dallas office studio. We've been talking a bit about his interest and why this is an issue and why he cares so much to help address it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Owen Lynch, who is an associate professor in the Medical School of Arts at the Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. Outside of the communications department, he holds the positions of Senior Research Fellow and Director of Community Research and Engagement for the Hunt Institute in Engineering and Humanity within the Lyle School of Engineering at SMU. He also serves as the Director of Get Healthy Dallas, which is a nonprofit organization he helped form that is dedicated to addressing the lack of healthy food options, adequate education, and economic development opportunities in Dallas, with special focus on the South Dallas and the Fair Park area. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Okay, Owen, so before the break, you gave us a plethora of information to help us really understand and presence the problem you're trying to address. And it's incredibly impressive, the work that you and your team are doing. And I know that you fold in an awful lot of organizations to try to leverage their expertise. I don't even know how you manage all that. But but one of the things that I want to make sure that we talk about, because it's something that's just happened here in Dallas, is the seedling farm opened up Mm -hmm. in November. Right. Tell us about the seedling farm. So the seedling farm is what I call an input solution. So the problem was, is we have lots of people doing amazing work uh, who are growing locally to feed their own communities. Some of them are in churches, some of them are in homeless shelters, some of them are in schools, and some of them are standalone small little farms that are just trying to produce to make the neighborhood better. But one of the problems or barriers that many of them faced is what do I grow, when do I grow it, and how do I get access to healthy small plants? Because most of the most vulnerable time for a plant is from seedling to the actual what they call a plug or a, uh, I mean a seed to a plug. And that's when you really uh, – and you can buy them from Home Depot, for example, as a three-inch plant, but they may not be designed for this region. They may have been on a truck for two weeks and overwatered. They may have diseases from other plants they've been around. Um, and they and as you notice, when you, many of us are planted outside from – from, there's nothing wrong with those. But – they many times can die. And if you have limited resources and you want you want to make sure that you're really feeding your community well, what I realized was people needed access to seeds and seedlings. They needed access to an expert so that they could coordinate the right plant for their garden and their community. So where do you put that? Because it wasn't currently in the system. So everyone needs this. It's a barrier or will help lots of people even if they want to start from their own little pot garden in their backyard. Um, so in a couple pots on their back porch. So I, I was lucky enough, I was working at the MLK Center, working with a group called Miles of Freedom and working with the MLK Center, um, City Hall, Dallas, City of Dallas. And they had a small garden called Freedom Garden that was started by the community, but like many community gardens, um, was very difficult to maintain without an expert there or someone helping or knowing what to do. 
Um, and they also met a man named Tyrone Day. And Tyrone Day um, has now become a really good friend of mine and also a partner in the Seedling Farm. He was an exonerated prisoner. So he did 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Now, most people would be furious or angry. Um, and I guess he was tempered through that period to realize he came out, he wanted to help the community where he was from and help people have better choices. And um, he was in prison. He managed prison greenhouse systems for 20 years. He, in fact, lived in the prison greenhouse. And I work with Texan AgriLife. They're part of my partners as well and Big Tex Urban Farms. And, the, and those expert farmers met Tyrone and both of them turned to me and said, this guy probably knows more than we do because of his experience. And he was cutting lawns at the time and managing a lawn service, care service. So Tyron and I realized that here was a resource for the community that's from the community. He was working out of the community center that is the center of South Dallas Fair Park community that's on city land. So it's accessible. It's a nice um, and it's really doing uh, Pam Jones, who's the director there, is doing amazing work of bringing the center back. So I put a seedling farm there, which is just a small greenhouse that pumps out seasonally appropriate seedlings for the community. Right. We've already put out six thousand into the community. So let me say that number again. We put 6,000 small plants out into community farms in South Dallas Bear Park that are turning into vegetable producing plants to feed their community. Um, we put some out in Bonson Farms. We put some out to our partners at um, Jubilee. We put some out with our partners uh, in Sunny South. We put some out with our partners in, um, in many other gardens at St. Philip's School. And what that was to enable people to do, they, anyone can go. He's open uh, usually every afternoon and during the week for students just to walk by. And people just walk in. He talks to them about healthy eating. He gives them a plant to go home to try to grow. So he's, he's got a real passion for it. But we're on target, so we're going to produce about 20,000 plants that will go out into the community over the next year. Um, and if you're a community member, we have a, that we, you, we can give you plants to get you started for a very low price, much cheaper than you can buy locally. So we can also reduce that price point down, provide experts, and also then make sure that you're getting a, a product that's going to dramatically increase your chance to grow better. And that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to help the system and help the individual growers do what they want to do better. Um, so that's one of the roles of, of Get Healthy Dallas and the Hunt Institute uh, primarily is to how can we look systemically where the weakest link is or where the barrier and how can we remove that to enable others to alleviate themselves out of poverty. So that's what the seedling farm is designed to do. Uh, and if you go on the, uh, online, you know, Owen Lynch Seedling Farm, you'll see pictures from it. But it was a really amazing event to happen uh, and it's already having great impact. So it's one of those projects that until it was built, nobody really needed and realized how much we need it. But in its quick adoption, you could already see how it's filling a really valuable role in creating a local food system, which is and currently is totally underdeveloped in Dallas. Um, so I'm really proud of that uh, that uh, that local achievement. And my partners with Tyron Day and to Vincent Martin have been able to do. And we're working with the Dallas Seedling Library, who are actually sourcing our seeds. Uh, and you can go and, and, and go on their websites and see their great work. And we'll work with many other people who are now linking using that as a, as a starting hub to teach, encourage, provide plants for people so they can grow better for their communities. What I like about that, I want to chime into that. And I hate to interrupt you because there's so much I just want to get out of you. But when I want to make sure that I present for our listeners that I like about that, because I am one of those weirdos who loves vegetables. Mm-hmm. They're the first thing that I eat on my plate. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm, I'm weird in that way for a, a lot of people. What I really like about the seedling program is that when people bring home those seedlings and they then, as a family, can watch that plant grow, as mm-hmm. you say, they get connected to how 
their food is actually grown that creates a, a, a connection to healthy food that people don't understand because what you and I have talked about before is if what's available for, for groceries is your local convenience store, which has largely processed foods, you'll never get access to and see and appreciate the fact that your food actually is a natural thing that grows from the ground. It doesn't come in a can or a package. I had a, a student who, a local high school student, who was um, walking by, because we're right next to a local high school, right to a Head Start program, right next to an old people's home, at where we put that student bar. And we have a pick and take. So we have gardens set outside where we grow plants and the neighbors come and just take one or two that they want. And, you know, it's been it's been a real success. And uh, this girl walked by and I said, here, take a pepper, try it. It's not hot. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sweet pepper. And she's like, that's, and she said, but it's got dirt on it. I'm like, yeah, it's got dirt to out of the ground. I said, you wipe it off, you can, you, but here's some water. And she said, I've never eaten it. He said, plants come from dirt? And I was, and literally had no idea what a, a fresh vegetable came from dirt. And she tried it. She said, it was good. Um, she, you know, so it was one of those things that we take it for granted sometimes. Um, you're right. When you when you peel your when you open a can and that's how you have food all the time, you sometimes miss those connections. So I think you're yeah I think you're spot on. And I just want to make sure that our listeners really are making these really these intricate connections because you're talking about things on such a an intricate systemic level. There's so many inputs and outputs that you're talking about. And part of what I wanted to make sure that they get is that we're at the end of the day we're really starting to talk about how people actually feed themselves and what does that mean? How do they choose the food that they eat? Where does it come from? And the fact that you're involved in such an endeavor that really impacts social economic. Um, all uh, really in familial and cultural aspects to me is is phenomenal. Yeah, no one should live in a food desert. I mean, nobody should, right? And and you may not want to eat vegetables, if you, especially if you're not growing up eating them. But you should only have the option to have them if you wished. That's right. right? That's right. I'm I'm with you on that. And, and to that end, one of the things you and I talked about on the break is this whole need for agri-hubs. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested. That's a new term for me. So if mm-hmm. you could first tell us what is an agri-hub, and then what are what's what are others doing across the world that's the, where they're doing that well? I'll give you two quick examples because maybe that will explain it best. So what an agri-hub is, it's a, it's a concentrated farm that tries to put as much of the food system into one place as possible so that you can launch many different types of agricultural engineers. So someone who makes salsa in a, in a kitchen next to the farm that's growing it, right? Those all of a sudden there's a synergy between those two companies and they both do better. The salsa person buys directly from their, from the person right next door. They also uh, know there's a direct market to their product and it, it lasts longer by making salsa. So there's a lot, that's just an example. Um, but, there's in Detroit they have now these things called agri hoods, where they're actually taking okay. parts of the city that have been decimated by poverty, and they're putting farms in the center of them and putting houses around them, mm-hmm. and they're finding that people want to live next to the farm, uh, and that it pr- increases the value of the property. It makes it more beautiful. It makes it greener, and then actually the ha- farms become connected to that agricultural uh, center. So we're looking in, in right now at how do we conceptualize at the Hunt Institute, is it possible to link with partners who have housing programs and create working farms where the people who are farming live on those farms in communities of poverty, evangelizing the community around them, creating an on-ramp for people to, who are coming in. So say, for example, you have someone who's, who's coming out from prison. You teach them to farm, you get them a job in the farm, and you also provide housing for them. Right? You also have a way for them to access a, a trade. These things can get connected. So agri-hubs are really about parts of the food system being concentrated in, in, a, in a, the agricultural area. 
I'll give you another crazy example to go far as extreme. And this is in the Netherlands called Regen Village. And that's a, what they call a closed-loop village. What a closed-loop village is is every aspect of that, of that town is uh, input for another system. So, for example, the water from your house, the gray water goes into the fields to, to water the plants. Um, the, the brown water goes and gets recycled through black soldier larvae and gets converted into energy and gets and then this black soldier larvae converts it into so, gets compost and that goes to feed the fish. The fish waste goes to feed the aquaponic system. The vegetables from the aquaponic system feed the fish but also then feed the cattle the, and feed the people. The cattle Prophenese manure, which creates soil, as well as the household waste creating soil, which creates urban agriculture. The urban agriculture then feeds, and so you can see how the whole cycle, cycle but they have entire closed communities that have no waste uh, and create their own energy from their outputs. Uh, And that's another whole level, and that's very concentrated using techniques called aeroponics and hydroponics and aquaponics, super high concentrated urban production um, and, and many techniques. But these things are available to us now. And the nice thing about being coupled with the research center like SMU, Lyle School of Engineering, is that we have the engineers who, you know, you say to a, a senior student, say, I need you to take a shipping container and turn this into a refrigerate refrigeration system for a farm. They'll figure a way how to do that, and I need to be closed system. In other words, I need to be net zero in energy drain. I need you to generate the energy that you need to cool the to cool the container. Those students will find a way, and they'll get it done if we can resource them and we can and we can encourage them. And that's a great way for them to use their knowledge, connect to the community, and provide a really needed asset. So the Hunt Institute and the Heart Center at SMU and the Law School of Engineering are really interested in working. And what my role is, is to be a conduit to help them connect to these projects so they can use their engineering knowledge to have real connection into these systems. So, for example, um, heart engineering students next semester are going to build a cooling system for the seedling farm so that the, the seedlings survive in the summer. Uh, and then we'll, drive, we'll do water catchment systems and train community members on how those stuff works. But those are the kind of things that a nice synergy having a world-class university can link into – um, food production systems, and then you add housing components and other nonprofits who are doing great work, and realize what your housing program can synergistically fit right into um, this farming program, and then we can double its impact. I want to comment on what you said about the the uh, ag hood in in Detroit. What I think is fascinating about that, and I don't know if, if you have data about about this. I'm sure you probably do, knowing you. Is it strikes me that what the, whoever was behind that has done a, an incredible job of being able to literally repurpose a problem city. Right. And I think that that solution is incredibly elegant, incredibly smart. When you talk about taking something that people would say, well, we should just start over, and and making it an elegant, beautiful attraction. Right. And that's really what asset-based community development is. Okay. Right. And that's where the philosophy just comes from, or participatory action, where you look at an area and instead of defining by what it doesn't have, oh, it's poor. Oh, it has no skills. Oh, it, it does have skills. It's just unseen. And it isn't just poor. There are people living there and, and working. So you don't define from the outside what you don't see. You go into the communities and talk to the community members and find out what skills are present, what assets are present, and how can you leverage those assets in a unique way to create growth up? Because 
charities are wonderful. We need them, and especially when people are hungry, you need to feed them. But then we need to ask the next question is, how do we stop them from being hungry? And how do we do it in a way that provides dignity to people? And the only way you can really do that is by saying, what skills do you have that we can leverage or what assets do you have locally that we can leverage to create um, bottom-up sustainable self-growth? It's that whole teach a man the fish, give a man the fish model. Um, but to, but you have if you recognize that this is this is an, a part of town that has been systematically underdeveloped for a long period of time. Uh, it is an it is an investment desert. Um, so there's a lot of things that are currently not present that you may have to come in. And there's some if you can find people like Tyrone Day, right? You find somebody with that skill set sitting there, right, waiting to be connected in. Um, and, and connecting the, someone like that in and what he can produce and what he's already producing and the impact that has when he manages now the farm at the Austin Street Shelter. Um, so the Austin Street Shelter has a Hope Garden paid for by Leadership Dallas that is a beautiful example of and, – and, and Tyrone manages that and provides fresh vegetables to the homeless community and they learn how to farm too. It's one of those things that a little tiny – hey, wait, there's an asset that you can leverage – Here's a place you can connect it. Here's a resource place where you can connect outside resources to make sure that works and then, you know, watch it grow. Um, that's the way, the, and I agree, that's the way Detroit ha- recognizes this issue. That's what Dallas can do that too. Any city in America, any city in the world can recognize that that's the way I, I believe that uh, smart, systematic uh, approaches can be can help a city go from a have, have not mindset, charity, need to a develop, co-develop together, but recognize it's the person who's living in those communities whose perspective is the most important and whose skills are the most important and design around them, with them, not on them or come in like superheroes. I really want to acknowledge, Owen, the beautiful role that you're playing in being able to look for that talent in a community and then find a way to leverage and then connect those different talents into and, and really make them into a fabric that you have into something that's really positively impacting the community. I really want to acknowledge you for that. It is such a privilege to get to know you and have you and count you as my friend. That's really um, uncomfortable. It, it, I know it is. I know it is. But I have to say it because it's yeah. amazing to hear what you're doing. And with that, you can still stay uncomfortable and we're going to okay. go on a break. How's okay. that? <laughs> I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the year with Dr. Owen Lynch, who is an associate professor in the Meadows School of Arts at Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. He also serves as the director of Get Healthy Dallas, a nonprofit organization he helped form that is dedicated to addressing the lack of healthy food options, adequate education, and economic development opportunities in Dallas, with special focus on the South Dallas and Fair Park area. He joins us today right here with me in my Dallas office studio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise. A-L-I-S-E at EliseCortez.com Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Owen Lynch, who is an associate professor in the Meadows School of Arts at Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. Outside of the communications department, he holds the positions of senior research fellow and director of community research and engagement for the Hunt Institute of Engineering and Humanity within the Lyle School of Engineering at SMU. He also serves as the director of Get Healthy Dallas, a nonprofit organization he helped form that is dedicated to addressing the lack of food, healthy food options, adequate education, and economic development opportunities in Dallas, with special focus on the South Dallas and the Fair Park area. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, Owen, in this last little bit here, um, what I want to start talking about is what you can tell us about local farms, why they're important, what function do they serve? Uh, thanks, because I, I, what's really important to recognize is that I'm one person talking, but there's a hundred people who are also working uh, with me or way beyond me doing uh, great works in their community. Um, local farms are important because, or even local gardens, um, they're places where people are growing locally for their communities or even growing locally to provide jobs uh, and, ser- and selling to the local restaurant industry, which we don't have enough of quite yet. Um, but there are a couple of shining examples, um, and I think the, probably the best examples that I can think of are three different models. One's at Paul Quinn, which is probably one of the oldest, and they have the We Over Me Farm, where they took one of their football fields, and they turned their football field into an actual farm that the students work on to work uh, as part of their college, uh, to pay for college, and then they produce vegetables for, for the students. For, actually for the Dallas Cowboy Stadium, for the spinach, uh, and then they also produce for their local community as well. Um, so that's a model that's very tight, uh, and they're a very well-run farm, uh, and that's a place that you that would be a great place to give and to serve if you want to do volunteer hours. Another one is um, Bonton Farms, which has gotten a lot of press recently, and deservedly so. 
Um, that's why a man founded by a man Darren Babcock, who went to Bonton, which at that time was considered uh, one of the one of the most blighted neighborhoods uh, in South Dallas, and he moved there to live, uh, and he moved there to um, to change hearts and and bring people closer to God. And he found by living there that many of his neighbors didn't have access to food, so he started growing vegetables. And then he found people coming and not knowing what they were and came and picking and eating. And then that turned into a small little acre farm, and now he's got an off-site farm, too, that supplies it. Um, and he'll be the first person to tell you that Bonton's a great success. It's employing people. It's evangelizing. It's bringing food into the community. But we need 2030 Bonton farms. We want to get the mass production to make a viable market and also really change the community landscape. The last one is one I work with a lot and I partner with is um, Big Tech Farms. And this is probably the most innovative and interesting one in terms of uh, out-of-the-box thinking. And it was actually a um, the State Fair of Texas as many of us know, is the only time when many people in Dallas go to South Dallas, particularly South Dallas Bear Park. What you may not realize is that it's there as a, as a landscape for the whole rest of the year, and it sits there as a heat island. The tarmac's there, the parking lots are there, uh, and it doesn't get fully as used. It's, just, it's, a, it's actually a city park. So the State Fair of Texas, as an organization, uh, and a man named Jason Hayes and um, his farmer now, Drew, um, realized that this was a parking lot that they could play with because they were living in the they were working in the middle of a food desert and they had this asset that wasn't being used for nine months of the year. What could they do with it? And they started farming using pallet boxes that are movable on their parking lots. And they went from a hundred boxes two years ago to a five hundred and eighty boxes this last year, and they're actually going to expand that number, and they converted the whole greenhousing system into an aquaponic system, which is going to produce massive amounts of food. They don't sell the food. They actually give the food to local diabetes centers uh, and other churches for, to give food to the community or in the homeless shelters, but they're producing an incredible amount of food um, out of those centers. But what's really incredible is they have these mobile farm boxes, and they were connecting with me and working with them with their mission and goal. We said, well, during the fair, these have to move because the fair is needed for parking lots. It's needed for vendors. It's needed for what the, what runs the state fair and what runs their ability to do this farm is that's, that's what pays for it. So now what they're doing is a program they called farming farms. And this was co-developed with the Hunt Institute and um, state fair of Texas and big. So um, they're taking the boxes during the fair time and then moving them into the community training people on those boxes and if the community members are able to sustain them and use them and grow vegetables they keep them so literally at the end while the fair is going on and you're paying your money into the fair realize that some of that funding will go to support these farming programs that will feed the community all year round but even more importantly some of that money will go into actually farming farms to other community members the first one was at cornerstone baptist church which has a hundred boxes and is managing those for their homeless community um, right now. So those are really interesting. Three very different models. One's, one's the, like an agri-hub in a college, and one is a, a, a person who just said, I'm going to start an urban farm here that I'm going to use, and now he's putting a yoga studio in and a wellness center and all many, many things. And please go visit their website um, and just see the uh, amazing work that's spinning from that project. And then the other is one that's Looking at an asset, looking at what isn't an, what people most people saw as a, a detriment, say that's an asset. Flipping that and now thinking about how can they use that to service the community around them and do good work. Um, and Drew, the farmer there, is uh, a gem. Uh, he's one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life, and he's a wealth of knowledge. And he's constantly out in the community, um, helping people uh, do their job and reach their farming goals better. For example, last Saturday he 
he just helped me put up a hoop house in, in a homeless shelter, um, even though I know he worked 70 hours that week probably helping other. He's, so there's people like that who are real. I, one of the things that my goal for Restoration Farm is to say there are real heroes out there really putting their, their back into their work for their community and providing fresh food. And I want to start featuring them on the, on the Restorative Farms website. Another man is a man named Brad Boa. And he's um, retired, but has become, he, he started a group, just the, how do we look at the food desert? And he's helping with a food film called WTF, Where's the Food? But it probably stands <laughs> for something else. Uh, and he's looking at um, helping, he is a connector, and he's a real one plus one equals three guy. And he really has this vision of, and he's one of the leading people behind Restorative Farms. Uh, as an umbrella organization to leverage everybody's strength and, and encourage everyone in the food desert. Because he, like me, and this will come to your last point, what can we do? I went down to the food desert seven, eight, I can't even remember now. And I drove down, I'd never been there, into the heart of South Dallas. And I looked at it for this project. And I got angry. I said, how can we live in a community that is so close, that has so much growth, and yet just across the highway, we have chronic poverty isolated poverty and people who have, don't have access to fresh, healthy food. That's that's wrong. And I was lucky enough to just get tenure. So, when, and I'm a very religious uh, driven person. So for me, I said, you know, what is, if tenure is my gift and it is, affords me the opportunity to have long-term horizon points where I can focus on a large project and have the job security to, to, to take the time and think, what can I do over the next 20 years to make a difference? And I can take that scope. That's a gift that most people don't get in life. How can I use that gift to help other people better? Um, so for me, it was a natural. I got tenure just to the point when I became aware of food deserts. And, and I said, okay, God, if this is where you want me to serve, then this is where I'll serve. Um, if this is where the and if I can find the place where the line's the thinnest, that's where I'm going to serve too. And I think a lot of people will want to come down and, and donations to restorative farms or donations to local farms or buying local fresh vegetables. All of that really helps. But also recognize if you're an accountant, find an organization that and they may need some accounting help, right? Um, or whatever your skill set is. But there's lots of farms that you can get connected into, be it through a homeless shelter like Austin Street Center or be it through Bonton Farms or be it through Big Tech Farms. There's lots of places that you can get connected. Go to Restorative Farms and, and connect through um, and you can be plugged into uh, a world that's looking for solutions. There's also great people um, who are looking at doing co-op modeled grocery stores uh, and how do we encourage those in the community um, that are owned by the community uh, those are going to need um, a lot of support and, and connections from the outside even if you have building skills how can you uh, tr tr train people how to use uh, construction uh, tools whatever it may be what, what I, I typically like to think once again learn people learn and talk to people where they are and find out what their interests are and how you can help them by learning what their skills and assets are, but also don't just come and give or do a big community day where, you know, you paint a house and feel good. If, if, if you have some skills that really can leverage, train somebody or do something, I think that has the most impact. So that's where, that, that's part of my, my goal is to start thinking about how can we utilize the, the great skill sets of North Dallas um, to to uh, to help South Dallas grow organically by itself and, and create a food hub. I mean, we have the opportunity of creating a food oasis in South Dallas as so much land. 
um, that could grow for the whole Dallas local sustainable food. Why are we getting 90% of our food from um, south of the border in terms of vegetables, right? So let me let me let me do this really quick here. We're we're getting close to running out of, out of time, but for the show. But what I want to make sure that we presence is that for the listeners, boy, if you don't hear passion, if you don't hear purpose in this, I I, I don't know else how to presence it for you. But <laughs> I think you got that. Um, so I, what I want to make sure that we get too is that there are people here who are locally listening in Dallas, and they understand Paul Quinn College, they understand restorative farms now, they probably know where Fair Park is. So you're suggesting that if somebody wants to help, they go to RestorativeFarms.com. They go to RestorativeFarms.com and get connected into the network. They can go to uh, Bonton Farms. Uh, they can go to the Hunt Institute um, at SMU. Uh, they can email me at olynch um, at smu.edu. So that's O-L-Y-N-C-H at smu.edu. Um, and I can connect them in. Um, but those are all really useful places to start. Um, there's... Uh, so that's probably the easiest access points. Uh, they can go on to gethealthydallas.com um, as well. But I would say uh, Restorative Farms is going to try to become the umbrella to connect all these different projects so people can find their space that they're most interested in. Um, but Bonson Farms is wonderful work and great volunteers. Me over We Farm at Paul Quinn. There's lots of places to get stuck in. What if you're someone listening in New York? What if you're somebody listening in England, somebody listening in in Africa? What? How would you direct them to try to be part of this movement? I think that recognize that that's a great question. And I think that to me, it is recognized that there's something interesting in food. We have Thanksgiving dinner. I've been to your house for Thanksgiving dinner. And one of the things, and many religious ceremonies are about sitting down and breaking bread or sitting and eating with each other. There's something that connects us to when we eat with each other. And we recognize that human eating and community around food, but also the nourishment of body and the wellness that provides even for a young child to learn. There's lots of great organizations that focus on food um, and food equity and access as their point to help others. And food is also an industry. It creates jobs. You have people like Cafe Memento and Chad Hauser who trains young men from prison to become uh, chefs. You have people uh, like Jenny Ayers, who works with children at risk, who makes her children have really good food before they have school. You have people like Ryan Eason, who works with kids teaching kids, who works with the Restaurant Associations and Health Industry to use the kid um, culinary schools to teach healthy habits. Search food and charity or food and programs and look food access and equity locally. You'll find some really interesting directly connected because food is perishable right you can't and so the 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 nonprofits that are centering in that world are going to connect jobs people and the thing that is most physically needed for communities um and recognize where there's a food desert there's a job desert there's a health desert there's an infrastructure desert and sometimes unfortunately there's going to be a hope desert um and so it's a it's a place to plug in but once you plug in you realize it's a bigger systematic problem it's really about chronic poverty that is isolated from the growth of the current supply chain. Dr. Owen Lynch, it is a pleasure to call you a friend and a colleague, and I so applaud what you're up to. I thank you for joining me as my guest. I sat back and I listened so you could say as much as you could to our <laughs> listeners. Thank you so much. 
If you want to learn more about Dr. Owen Lynch, he's already told you that you can go to restorativefarms.com. You could go to healthy, what is it, gethealthydallas.com. Definitely send him an email. If you like what he's up to, you want to support him in any way in his team, send him an email at olynch at smu.edu. That's O-L-Y-N-C-H at smu.edu. Join us next week when we're we're on the air with Greg Pike, who is actually a man with many hats, a lot like Dr. Owen Lynch. In his case, Greg is a CPA and accounting professional and also a comedian. And here's where it gets ironic. We'll be talking about the importance of incorporating meaning in our work and the way that he's discovered how to do that in playful ways. See you then. Remember that work is at least one third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. Hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Work.